Welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com. Can we just pray before we, we dig into this morning's passage? Father, we come to you thankful and humbled by your love for us and your grace and your mercy over all of our lives. And in these moments, Lord, as we open the Bible and we think about the stories that are told, may the words that are just of me fall away and may only what has come from you be heard. Open our ears and our hearts and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, Lord. Amen. Amen. I, I just was so struck when John led us worship this morning, and I wanted to highlight and honor him, really, for the tension that we walk as people of faith. So we believe for miracles, and we believe for healing, and we pray, and we trust, and yet sometimes we lose our precious people in ways that we hadn't hoped for. And I just wanted to honor him in that because that vulnerability and that is the tension and the challenge, but also the reality of living as a follower of Jesus. And it doesn't mean that we don't pray and believe and hope, but it also means that sometimes we stand at a graveside and there is no getting away from that grief or that horror or that pain. And somewhere in the middle, Jesus is always to be found. I often think that if we really imbibed the things that we sang, there would be actually no need to preach because we speak of so many truths that um, sometimes words are wasted. So this morning I'm continuing. We're nearly at the end. You may be glad to hear that of this series called Liberated by Love. It started with encounters with Jesus in the Gospels and we're now sitting in the book of Acts in the establishment of the early church. Um, and I wanted to start with this quote from Sarah Bessie that really caught my attention this week. People should never be the collateral damage of your theology. Let's just sit with that and let that sink in. No one should be the collateral damage of your theology. And this week someone asked me, could you describe for me the story of God, the big narrative of the Bible, just in one minute? And it got me thinking because we could talk all day of the story of God. But I suppose how I summed it up, and I've thought about it as the weeks progressed, and every time I've told it to myself, I've told it slightly differently. But to me, the story of God in one minute is a love story, that there was a creator of heaven on earth, and he designed us for good relationships with himself, with others, and with creation. We messed it up, and we wanted to live our own way. And the remainder of the Bible tells us about Jesus, God's rescue plan. And as it says, hopefully behind me, the grand narrative of the Bible is a love story. And it is God in relentless pursuit of his people. Relentless pursuit of his people. And if you're here this morning and you've messed up again this week, like we all do, he is relentlessly pursuing you. You are welcome and loved and forgiven. You simply need to give your yes again and again. 
Richard Rohr talks about um, developing and knowing your own hermeneutic, which is a very long and complicated way of saying, learn about your biases, about your lenses, and how you read the Bible. That's what hermeneutics is, what way we read the Bible. And it's based on our experiences, our beliefs, our biases. And it's important to know them because that's how we read our Bible. And so there's, there's four main hermeneutics that are talked about in literature, literal, moral, allegorical interpretation. Example would be the flood. Was there actually a flood or was the actual story more about the type of people that God was desiring to follow him? There's the anagogical, which is more of the mystical interpretation of the Bible, looking at the messianic prophecies and the life that is to come. And so when we look at any passage of the Bible, we need to look at it and think, let's define the terms of it. Is it narrative? Is it a piece of poetry? Is it a parable? And think the context of the, of the story is always key. Or as I heard someone say once, the context is king. If you don't know the context, you'll take a literal meaning of it and apply it to our lives and we'll probably get it wrong. And so in our tradition, in Redeemer here, we would accept a Christological hermeneutic, which means that we read everything in the Bible through the lens of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so every passage that we come to, we think about what it says, how it was reflected in the life of Jesus, because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that informs that hermeneutic, and it's very important. So today, the encounter that I want to talk about is a very brief one with someone who culturally was the lowest of the low. She was a 10 to 12-year-old slave girl called Rhoda. She's only mentioned in a few verses in Acts 12, and yet her presence and her story points very strongly to the kingdom of God, how God is always at work amongst the least of these, the marginalized, those on the outside, those who perhaps the world reject. Those are the characters that God calls and uses. They are the ones who truly identify and follow the suffering servant. And so I wanted, I love this quote from Anne Graham Lotz. There were so many outstanding women in scripture that were leaders. And you know the organized church sometimes put boundaries on us that the Bible doesn't. And so I want to speak to women in the early church, and then I want to look at Rhoda, this story. And if we think of this Christological lens, we look at the life of Jesus and the stories that were told. And Luke, who wrote the gospel, obviously, and also wrote the book of Acts, seems to point a lot and teach a lot to how God viewed women and how women were key and important in the development and establishment of the early church. If we compare the writings in the, of the four Gospels to other um, secular writing of that time, the Gospels carried so many more stories of women. In the writings of that time, women tended not to be mentioned. And so that's very interesting in itself. So they show more women than any other writing of that time. So this is something to pay attention to. In Luke 8, there's talks about Mary, Mary Magdalene, Chusa, Susanna, Joanna. 
Jesus, in his life, praised women for their faith, the Canaanite woman. He spoke of their generosity. He highlighted the widow's gift, the woman who looked for her lost coin. He did something totally countercultural. He spoke to them in public, the woman at the well. He spoke to them when no one would have spoken to them. He allowed them to touch him when nobody would have allowed them to touch him. Jesus' heart was always towards women. And this isn't just to preach about women. This is about those of us that we put on the outside or we have ideas about that they're not supposed to be part of us. Jesus tells a very different story. And that, I believe, is the hope of the gospel. Jesus taught them theology, Mary and Martha. He spent all evening talking to them. In a culture where women weren't allowed in the temple, that was the men. Jesus sat with the women and talked to them. They were the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. There's not a story of a woman who left him, deserted him, or betrayed him. Listen to that, lads. And there was wealthy women, business women. They traveled with him and they funded his ministry. Totally countercultural. And the book of Acts develops it more. Peter obviously is in the early stages of Acts. And then in the passage we're reading, there's the transition to the leadership to James and then Paul and Barnabas. Women in a variety of professions were all establishing the early church. Acts 16 talks about Lydia. She was a businesswoman. She sold purple. She established the Greek church in her home because she was wealthy and had a big house and she established the church. In Acts 17, we talk, there, the story is told of Damaris, who was an intellectual woman. And she spoke at the Athens Leading Council. Now, what we need to understand about that is that the only woman who got to speak in a council that was solely attended by men were essentially high-class prostitutes and escorts who were also intelligent. So it was a niche, niche woman. So there is Damaris and Richard Bockham, who is an, a really gifted New Testament scholar. He said the fact that all these women were named shows that they were very significant teachers. So think about that. Damaris, an intellectual woman who perhaps started life as an escort, became a teacher and establish the church in Acts. That is truly beautiful and restorative and exciting. Phoebe in Romans 16, she was a businesswoman. So, you know, we all think women of our age were trying to do it all. They were doing it all back then. It's not new, us thinking we're trying to do it all. She was a preacher, a teacher, a leader, and she also ran a business. She carried Paul's letters from, from him right across the land on one of her trades. What a woman. Love it. Priscilla, the tent maker in Acts 18, she was married to Aquila, and they ministered together. Paul took them from Corinth to Ephesus when he wanted to establish the church in Ephesus. She's always named with her husband, and they're named six times. And five out of the six times, her name is mentioned first because she actually was the lead of that couple. So this is all very significant. We need to know the context that when a woman is mentioned first in relation to her husband, it is because she is seen as having a more of a leadership role than her husband did. Again, totally countercultural. 
In Romans 16, there's the story of Junia, who was in prison with Peter. She is a Jew and she had seen Jesus. And some theologians would suggest that she is also Chusa, who was mentioned in Luke chapter 8. So the point I'm trying to make is that women were leaders and it was a radical departure from the pagan philosophical notions of that time. And it was only centuries later, after these stories were written and lived, that Aristotle started to teach everyone that women were simply flawed men and were not to lead. And so within church history, the door to women was closed. That has moved on from the third century and women in many places are now leading and teaching and living and not having to fight their place. But it's not always been the way. If I could recommend a brilliant book, it's just published so I haven't got to read it yet, but his work is really gifted, Nija Gupta. He's just written that and published it in 2023, Tell Her Story. He's been teaching New Testament theology and the role of women for 15 years in the University of Durham, and he's written a book. So if any of you women, and perhaps more importantly, you men, if you need to wonder where women's place is in the story of God and in the church, get reading, buy this book. I've got it on my Audible and I've just started. And it's good, good stuff, deeply grounded in theology. Um, and it's well worth it. Finally, you'll all be glad to hear we're going to read the passage. So it's Acts 12, 1 to 19. And it'll come up behind me. It's the last significant episode in the story of Peter. And at the start of this passage, James has been beheaded and murdered Peter is suffering and in prison and facing his death, and Herod is triumphing. By the end of this passage, Herod is dead, Peter is free, and the word of God is triumphing and spreading throughout the land. So let's read it. I'm reading from the NRSVUE version. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church, he had James, the brother of John, killed with a sword. After he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the festival of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison and handed him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. The very night before Herod was going to bring him out, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his wrists. The angel said to him, Fasten your belt and put on your sandals. He did so. Then he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter went out and followed him. He did not realize that what was happening with the angel's help was actually real. He thought he was seeing a vision. After they had passed the first and second guard, they came before the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord and they went outside and walked along a lane when suddenly the angel left him. 
Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many had gathered and were praying. When he knocked at the outer gate, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. On recognizing Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she insisted that it was so. They said, it's his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the gate, they saw him and were amazed. He motioned to them with his hand to be silent and described for them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he added, tell this to James and to the believers. Then he left and went to another place. When morning came, there was no small commotion among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and could not find him, he examined the guards and ordered them to be put to death. Then he went down from Judah to Caesarea and stayed there. Sixteen guards were put to death as a result of, of Peter escaping. Sixteen people. So John has just been martyred and Peter is scheduled for edge execution. So let's think about all the characters in this story. Peter is at the end of leading the church. He's passing it on to James, the brother of Jesus, and he's in prison facing death. He's lying the night before his planned execution. He's chained on both sides by two men, and he's sleeping. What a guy could sleep the night before his death. That in itself, I think, is remarkable. If we think about this Herod, it's the grandson of the Herod who was around at the time of Jesus' birth. So that was Herod the Great. Then there was Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist. This Herod was a Roman. He was a friend of Caligula, and he was a bit of a chameleon. He did what worked. So early in the passage, it said it, it went down well with the Jews, so he decided to murder Peter. He did whatever pleased people. And at that moment, the movement of Jesus was a threat to the throne. The setting is Passover, a reminder constantly of Exodus. That is one of the meta-narratives of the Bible. So you've the grand narrative of a story of love, and then you've lots of meta-narratives. One of them is Exodus. How the word Exodus means a thin place, and the people of God are set free from a thin place to a new place of life. And I believe many of us live that Exodus story now, that we are bound or we're in patterns, or we have relationships that aren't healthy for us, we're in a thin place, and by an engagement and a relationship with the King of Kings, we walk into something new and whole and fresh and where we are healed. And I think Exodus and that narrative goes right across. We have Mary. So Acts is a, set of, is a set of stories of the early church, her heartache and hardship, but the church showing grace through resistance. We have Mary, who was the mother of John Mark. Because she's named as the mother, she obviously, her husband was dead. She was a widow. 
We know that she was wealthy because she had a house with an outer gate. She had those beautiful qualities that I would say are perhaps female attributes, generosity and hospitality. She was a teacher and an organizer of the early church, and she housed the believers in her home. We have Rhoda. Rhoda is the second female voice that we hear in the book of Acts. They reckon she was probably around 10 years old, and her place as a servant girl was the lowest of the low. She couldn't have got lower. People tended to ignore her, and her place would have been at the gate. So the fact that she wasn't at the gate, but she went out to the gate would suggest she was a believer and she was a follower of the way. She also recognized Peter's voice, so she must have known him as a teacher. So we can propose that she was probably a believer. So you've got the guys, the followers of Jesus, some of the disciples, they've lived with him, they've known him, they're following him, they're bringing the church, they're praying all night for someone to get free. And the answer to the prayers is knocking the door. <laughs> and what do they do when Rhoda tells them? You're mad. And we, there's an almost comedy value to this picture. And yet, and yet, if we humbly look at our lives and at our, our, our prayer life, do we often pray for things not really thinking they might happen? Not really thinking as we sit on our knees, the answer's actually at the door? Or do we really believe that God will show up and, and do the miracle that perhaps we're asking for? And I say that holding the tension of what we've all talked about. I'm not saying our prayers and their outcomes are dependent on our faith. We know that's not true. But do we often expect what we pray for to happen? Or do we even see it? And I wonder sometimes if the lens that we have, that perhaps the things that we're praying for are actually being answered. Maybe not in the way we're expecting, but we just don't have eyes to see. And so that is my prayer this week, that when I pray and I petition and I bring to God what I long to see, that I also have the eyes to see him at work, no matter what the answer is. No matter what the answer is. So there's Rhoda, little Rhoda, telling them what they were praying for had happened, and they respond to her with derision and humor. Typical of her class, Slaves often told lies to fit in, to ingratiate themselves to their master. And so due to her gender, she also wasn't a reliable witness. Women at the tomb, they weren't allowed to speak in court because woman's testimony was never allowed. A slave was open to abuse by her master. And yet, in the story of God, the countercultural and subversive ways of the kingdom in Joel 2, verse 18, female and male servants will prophesy. Acts 1, verse 14, all prayed together. Rhoda, due to her age, her gender, and her class, is at a severe disadvantage to being a truthful witness. Whatever lens we choose to consider her under, she was to be ignored. But it's not the first time that Luke points us to a servant girl who called out the truth of the kingdom. In Luke 22, it's a servant girl who recognizes Peter 
and calls them out. What is Luke teaching us? I think Luke is teaching us, if we study his gospel and the book of Acts, he is teaching us that the invitation to women is to operate within the kingdom above and beyond social convention. And I would take it wider than that. It's not just about gender. What do we want to take from this story? This story speaks to the grand story of God. It challenges institutional and perhaps personal insecurities. This story exalts a slave woman over a wealthy woman, a slave girl over the disciples and followers of Jesus, and gives her her place in the grand story of redemption, restoration, and reconciliation with Jesus and with one another. And scripture so often, as I said at the beginning, has been used to oppress, to suppress, restrain, silence, belittle, demean, and exclude women, the young, those on the margins. And yet the bigger story is of reconciled relationships and how we all are to rise up and take our place in the kingdom of Jesus. And so I want to say to you this morning that if your gender, your age, your sexuality, any, your past, your present, anything that you feel has excluded you from the kingdom that is represented here at this table, that is not a reflection of the story of God, a father who is in relentless pursuit of his children relentless pursuit of his children. And so as we come to the table where we connect with the King of Kings and the one who always calls us the beloved, if you're a young person, we need you to teach us because of such is the kingdom of God. If you're a woman, <clears throat> your qualities, your generosity, your hospitality, your service, your humility, your wisdom, we need you in the church. If you are in the margins and have been overlooked, whatever the reason, God is always at work in the margins. And if we, the people of God, want to find where he is at work, we need to be in the margins. We should spend very little time here and a lot more out on the margins. All of us, I want to invite us those little words, he did so. Peter didn't know what was happening. He thought it was an angel. He couldn't quite work it out. He did so. And Augustine teaches on that. Don't always understand what the Lord is doing. Follow him. So Gillian spoke so beautifully last week about someone who had given her a dream and told her that she was going to be, or that she may be on the move and she would be in a quarry. Some of us might have heard that and thought, she wrote it down and she was faithful and then when she's standing on the site of her new home she happens to notice it's in a quarry <laughs> and so I long for us as a community to dream dreams to be brave to seek the work of the spirit to follow the nudges of the spirit and to cheer one another on to cheer one another on and be there on the days when it doesn't go well. That, I believe, is the call of God. So Augustine says, follow and trust. You don't need to understand, follow and trust. 
and prayer. I want to just speak as we end to prayer. Prayer is not just a kind of Christian version of mindfulness. There's something of that to it. But it is warfare. It is a radical act of faith. And it is always, always, it will lead us to the ways of Jesus. And so what is on your heart, pray it and believe it. Gather people around you who will do it with you. And let's help one another perhaps see the answers that are right in front of us that we hadn't actually noted. So just as we come to the table and John comes up to lead us in worship, as we say every week, everyone is welcome at the table here in this community, regardless of, everyone is welcome, I don't even need to say any more. Everyone is welcome because it's not our table, it is the table of the Lord. And perhaps just as John begins to play, maybe we can take a moment just to think, where am I in this story? What in this story has actually spoken to me this morning? Is it that I need to learn to use my voice more? Is it that I need to dig down and be persistent and brave like Rhoda was? She didn't give up. They shamed her, they derided her, and she kept going. Is it that I'm praying for something and I don't actually see the answer that's right in front of me? Is it that I'm young and I think no one will listen to me and yet I am convinced that the youth will teach us more of the ways of heaven than us old dolls ever will? And so if you are young in this community, we need your voice. We need to pay attention and we need to encourage you. And if you're a woman this morning who has ever felt demeaned because of your gender, who has ever felt that you are less, that is not the ways of Jesus. That is not the theology that we find across the story of God. And so you're invited to step into all that you're called to be and to step up and minister to us in those ways. And so as we come this morning, whether you felt on the outside by what you've done or what's been done to you, whether you feel right in the middle of the story, you are welcome. So let's stand, let's worship, and let's take our time and read. There... I had a lovely blessing, which I'd forgotten about. Let me just read this over you. Our, our friend Porigo Tuma wrote this, and I think it's beautiful. Jesus of the table, you gathered unexpected people around, and you offered us your hospitality. You stretched out your hand for grapes and bread, wine and welcome, May we always populate our tables with all kinds of people because at the table, our hearts can be glad for a while. Let's come and let's, um, let's savor the bread and the wine because it reminds us that we are made new. We are made new. Ian and Libby, would you serve us? Thank you.